2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. His other website, in addition to Work.info, is rdwolf with two Fs.com. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Catherine Rampell is writing over at the Washington Post today that our economy is a ticking time bomb ready to explode the unemployment figures and trump was on tv this morning saying oh we just had a recovery here professor wolf welcome back to the program what do you think are things getting better or is this crisis does this crisis have the potential to be apocalyptic
4: i have no hesitation whatever which in a fact makes me sad and also even surprises me But I have no hesitation in saying, yeah, we are at the apocalyptic stage, that the possibilities for a general economic collapse have never been as strongly indicated as they are now. The ups and downs of the unemployment number cannot, although Mr. Trump will try, mask just a few of the underlying realities. Five or six million people have left the labor force. That is, they're so discouraged about their economic possibilities, they're not even looking for work. They have resigned themselves into a a kind of situation of uncertainty of the sort that most of the rest of us are terrified about. Half of the commercial tenants in this country, the stores, the restaurants, haven't paid their rent to their landlords for the last two or three months. The landlords are therefore in an advanced state of collapse. They can't pay their loans back to the banks who lent them the money to create the businesses, the malls, and all the rest of it. Everybody is hiring lawyers to go into court to evict the millions of people who haven't paid their rent, to evict the stores uh, that haven't paid their rent. The banks are in court against the landlords. The landlords are in court against the tenants. All the normal functions of a capitalist economy have broken down, and we're now in the business of lining up our paid warriors, the lawyers in this case, and the ones with the most money, to hire the best lawyer, wins. That's not capitalism anymore. That really is a system breaking down.
3: Yeah, it reminds me of some of the very, very impoverished countries that I worked in back in the 80s.
4: Exactly. How do you see That's this really, point if I could pick up on that point sure. Tom We used to watch on TV those other societies that had rich cities enclaves where a wealthy class lived and then the camera would pan around to the vast Swamps of misery and poverty, like you have on the outskirts of Sao Paulo or Lagos, Nigeria, and so forth and so on. We are in the stages of becoming a country with a terribly small wealthy class playing the stock market at one end and a vast population sinking into conditions we never dreamed we
5: would face.
3: Yeah, I, I recall uh, when I was working in Colombia, in Bogota, Colombia. We were driving down, a, you know, a major artery, but it went through a, basically a slum. And there was this giant billboard, and it showed a, a nice kind of middle-class ranch house with a pool with a couple of cute white kids sitting by the pool. And then closer in, picture on the billboard, there was this barbed wire fence, or this, uh, you know, a fence with razor wire on the top and an armed guard, on the outside of the fence with a machine gun, and it was an ad for a new housing community. <laughs> this is like
4: when I visited Sao Paulo in Brazil in the 1990s, early. Same thing. These lovely urban co-op apartments surrounded by barbed wire with a guard with carrying a machine gun in front of each yep. house, barring all the people that were not welcome, which was the vast majority we are going to be unless something radical changes we are headed in that direction we have too many problems climate change the collapsed economy the racism the virus it's too much too many problems unsolved coming together at one point and when that happens it's kind of like overloading a circuit and things blow
3: so in a practical world given the tools that we have right now in the form of government that we have right now and and the economic systems that we have in place right now where do we start let's assume for a moment that Donald Trump loses the election and Joe Biden becomes president where should an administration that's committed to not having oligarchy and and I can't say that that's the commitment of the Biden campaign but let's if if we had a, an administration that was not committed to America being a full-blown oligarchy or, you know, a, a, whatever you would call that, kleptocracy. Where do we begin? Social safety net?
4: Well, the only thing I can think of, to tell you the truth, I think we're beyond it. I don't think we're going to get, neither from Trump nor from Biden, anything remotely like the level of change that these interwoven problems now demand. They all want little fix they argue over how much of a fix it to put in but both of them keep talking about a return to normal as if it wasn't the normal that got us into this mess. and so i don't see anything coming from these two forces i think the biden people have now distinguished themselves by having expunged the progressive side and even they weren't yet aware i think of how deep this problem is and how massive the change, you have to be willing to go way beyond what they're willing to go. And since I don't see them doing that, my answer to your question is we have to reconstruct the kind of alliance from below that existed in the 1930s and that made that depression the occasion for creating a social security system that never existed before unemployment compensation that never existed a federal job program that had never been done on that scale and those wouldn't be enough now because our problems are bigger but they give you an idea of how basic the changes have to be in order for us to cope with this problem And I think everybody who's been yelling about them, whether it's climate change or the instability of capitalism or the racism and so on, are tired of reasserting these dangers to people who really don't want to hear about it and are marching themselves into a kind of doom that makes you remember the, the collapse of slavery, the collapse of feudalism, and you begin to wonder whether it's capitalism's turn.
3: I guess the one thing that gives me some small hope, the books I've read on the FDR candidacy and the the New Deal era, when he campaigned in 1932 in that election for president, he campaigned on a platform of lowering tariffs and balancing budgets. Absolutely. (laughs) He did not campaign on the New Deal. But when he came into office, he saw how bad things were and he rose to the occasion. I guess I'm just an optimist. I hope that Biden and the people around him are able to do that.
4: Well, my feeling is, yeah, he rose, but he rose because underneath him there was a fire that was getting warmer and warmer and made him stand up and do something differently. And that's my hope, that out of all of the movements developing now, you'll get the kind of coming together solidarity coalition that can press a Biden uh, to do such a thing.
3: Yeah, it's like FDR famously said, make me do it. I agree with you. Now make me do it so which means it's got to be movement politics we've all got to work together on this professor richard wolf you are brilliant thank you so much for dropping by today great talking to you. thank you tom thank you and be sure to check out democracy at and rdwolf with two fs.com you can tweet him at prof wolf Well, more symptoms of the um, massive, extraordinary, mind-boggling incompetence of the Trump administration. And I, I would say this isn't just incompetence, and it's not just malice. You know, they just like hurting the American people. It's ideological. These guys are following the Koch brothers, you know, libertarian theory that the only thing that government is good for is running the army and the police. That's it shouldn't be public schools. There shouldn't be a post office. There shouldn't be unemployment insurance. There shouldn't be social security. There shouldn't be Medicare or Medicaid. None of those things. Even public roads should be toll roads that are owned by rich people. Nothing that the government does should be done by the government. Everything should be done by billionaires and big corporations that they own. Period. Full stop. This happens when Republicans staff the government. Ronald Reagan put Bill Bennett, the guy who said that there should be no Department of Education in charge of the Department of Education. He put James Watt, who said that it doesn't matter what you do to public lands out west. It absolutely doesn't matter, because Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's going to make all things new. So James Watt was selling off public lands to oil companies and uranium mining companies and gold mining companies for pennies on the dollar forget about if they were, you know, uh, historic sites or national parks or Indian reservations or whatever it may be. James Watt was selling it. That was Reagan. Then George W. Bush comes along and says, you know, government can't do anything right. So why even bother? Let's put a let's put a guy who is a judge for a horse show. So he puts Brownie, Michael Brown, who was a judge for horse shows in charge of FEMA. And, of course, that led to the Katrina disaster, predictably. And so now we've got Donald Trump, and he's put the, the guy in charge of our coronavirus response, in addition to his son-in-law, who's you know worthless, useless, does nothing more than go around and extort foreign governments to loan him money, so to bail out his lousy purchases of things like 666 Fifth Avenue. The other guy that's in charge of this in addition to his son-in-law, Jared, is a guy who is a labradoodle breeder. Which is why, and then, you know, Sonny Perdue, right, uh, is in charge of the agriculture department. Right, you know, let's get people who really have an interest in these uh, businesses, in these uh, agencies to run them. This uh, from politico.com by Scott Mahasky. Tens of millions of pounds of American-grown produce is rotting in fields as food banks across the country scramble to meet a massive surge in demand. The Agriculture Department took more than a month to make its first significant move to buy up surplus fruits and vegetables despite repeated entreaties. Nikki Freed, Commissioner of Agriculture in Florida, asked Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue nearly a month ago to get funding so that more Florida farmers could get plugged into federal food purchasing and distribution services so that they could basically take their surplus food that otherwise would be going to restaurants because it's a separate supply chain for restaurants because restaurants buy things in big boxes in bulk, whereas retail stores buy things in small packages that are, you know, individually packaged. So Purdue could have done this, but It has been six weeks since President Donald Trump and the Centers for Disease Control Prevention first urged Americans to avoid restaurants, a move that immediately severed demand for millions of pounds of food. Instead, Now what we have is images of farmers destroying tomatoes, piling up squash, burying onions, dumping milk, at the same time that you have people literally lined up for miles to get food from food banks. Yeah. Demand at food banks has increased an average of 70%, and 40% of the people showing up in food banks have never been to a food bank in their lives. This is nuts. This is just plain old nuts. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today?
1: Hey good morning Tom thanks for taking my call and I uh, wish you and your magnificent staff a happy holiday weekend the line 5 pipeline in Michigan underneath the great lakes which would be a catastrophe beyond belief if that ruptures it's temporarily shut down and it needs to be permanently shut down I don't know if you've looked into that but it's it's really Absolutely. a disaster waiting to happen yeah so um, and speaking of Michigan I don't know if you saw this last week. But um, John Schwartz tweeted and then Michael Moore retweeted a powerful clip from Michael's film, Where to Invade Next. And it's a segment showing how Germany used monuments and other public displays to educate its citizens to atone for and never forget the evils of its Nazi history, something you talk about a lot. Michael ends the clip by saying, we need to do the same here and start with the basic acknowledgement of quote i'm an american i live in a great country that was born of genocide and built on the backs of slaves unquote you know it'd be a good first step but tom in answer to your question of whether america can recover from this trump-caused tsunami of pain and suffering i think we can if joe biden follows fdr's playbook that got us out of the great depression and I think who we chooses for his VP and AG as well are going to be key, not only to getting him elected, but also how bravely he'll govern. And as you know, from 1940 to 44, FDR had a dynamic pro-labor, anti-racist, anti-fascist VP named Henry Wallace. And Tom, I still right. say. And he also had say, Francis
3: Perkins. You know, yeah, Frances Perkins and... is really the author of the New Deal, and she was absolutely yeah. brilliant, the country's first female labor secretary. But she wrote most of the New Deal programs. Excuse me, Jeff, go ahead. That's...
1: Yeah, no. Well, I'm glad you brought her up, because of all the women under consideration, I think the one who would rekindle the spirit of Francis Perkins and Elizabeth Wallace, the best as Joe Biden's vice president, would be Elizabeth Warren. And since you're the historian, Tom, would you agree with that?
5: Yeah,
3: absolutely.
1: You know, Harvey Kaye had a post on Common Dreams last week reviewing John Nichols' new book, which is on Henry Wallace, and Harvey postulated that, you know, the Democratic Party really, it, you know, you've talked a lot, well, where did the Republican Party lose its way? Well, Harvey postulated that the Democratic Party lost its progressive way when Truman replaced Wallace as the VP in 1945. Would you concur with that as well? Yeah. Yeah it wasn't 45,
3: it was 44, but yeah.
1: Yeah, he was inaugurated in 45, but in the election of 44, yeah. And apparently FDR capitulated to the conservative forces in the party to do that. So, yeah, I mean, 75 years later, now more than ever, we really need to get back to progressive ideals
3: I agree, especially if we want this country to work. <laughs> it's just like, there's a practical dimension to this as well as an ideological one. Jeff, thank you.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: The place where despair is not an option. Robert in Rolling Prairie, Indiana. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind? I
2: was watching Chris Hayes yesterday. He laid out mm-hmm. in succinct detail the Two Santa Claus Theory, which was the first time I've seen really? somebody but you talk about it.
3: Did he it's attribute it good. to Judah Winniski back in 1976 oh, in the no. Wall Street
2: Journal, or did he no. just.? Okay, No, he just explained what Republicans are doing. Oh, it and works. Mitch McConnell and all. Anyways, uh, you know, he didn't even say it was the Two Santa Claus Theory. What I called for was, you know, I see these protesters. I see what they're they're wanting. I see Donald Trump doing what Donald Trump does, and this thing with the the swab that he says he wants to buy from America, but he won't buy America apparently. unless this uh, he could buy right. from
3: China from this company in Maine. But, yeah,
2: yeah, the, the one in Maine. But he, you know, he he says he wants to. Buy from America, and meanwhile, all these protesters are out of work. They're flying Trump flags and 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 Confederate cross flags and and all that crap, and they're talking about you know loss of freedom. We never had, we never lost the freedom to go to go outside, you know, as long as we were six feet away from from. Uh, I just don't understand what these people, these Trump supporters, what's what, what do they want?
3: There is this group of right-wing billionaires, the Mercers and Cokes and whatnot of the world, who believe that they are the victims of government tyranny, that when government inspectors come and tell the Coke uh, refineries that they can't emit poisons, oh my God, that's tyranny. When they try to regulate financial markets so that uh, average working people don't get ripped off through things like the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, oh my God, that's tyranny. And so these libertarian billionaires then take that message—we are experiencing tyranny at the hands of the government—and basically dress it up and sell it to whatever suckers they can find, whether it's people whose primary agenda is basically protesting America's first black president, feminazis, women, you know, having power, you know, using Limbaugh's old term, abortion, whatever it may be, there's some little crack that you can use to get into them and basically say, you know, we're all being oppressed together. So you guys, now, you know, <laughs> I guarantee you the billionaires are not saying I'm going to go out there and protest. But you guys, you, you need to get out there and protest and make some noise. And it worked for them in 2010 around Obamacare and got rid of the public option. And they thought it was going to work for them. Again, Charles Koch has officially uh, uh, withdrawn any support for these protests. There was, it was in the news this morning. So I think that it's blowing back on them. Betsy DeVos, though, has not disavowed them. She's, Her foundation or her family or whatever is funding one of the groups that is sponsoring the Michigan protests. But that's what's going on, Mike. And, of course, whenever they have to write a check to pay taxes, they feel like, oh, it's tyranny, oh, my God. They're just getting people to think like they were billionaires when they're our not. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. So, you know, I was talking about all these uh, signs of uh, looming recession, and the, and the ones that I gave you are just kind of the tip of the iceberg. We've talked, in fact, we talked with Richard Wolff about the massive explosion in consumer debt. People are not keeping up the massive explosion in, in student debt, particularly since 2005 when, when uh, you know, Congress passed the bankruptcy laws so you can't discharge it. And then the banks thought, oh, these are absolutely risk-free loans. Let's jump into this with both feet housing debt is going up too because the housing bubble and the housing bubble is the consequence of low interest rates. So we're seeing this explosion in the value of houses, or at least in the price of houses. But all of this begs the question, recessions do have political consequences. They have major political consequences. It's virtually a truism. It's a, it's, a, it's almost almost Excuse me. Almost always true that when the economy is bad, the electorate will elect the other party. Uh, Jimmy Carter had a recession. It was you know the tail end of the second Arab oil boycott. Ronald Reagan became president. Well, Obviously, there was a bunch of other factors, but you know there was a recession there. The biggest one in our lifetimes in recent days was 2008. George Bush. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney presided over the largest crash and freeze-up of our economic system, literally the largest, since the Great Depression. And Barack Obama got elected president. So so when the economy is bad, typically people say, you know, we'll try the other party. Maybe they can do a better job. Because people do vote their pocketbooks. They do vote their jobs. People want to keep their jobs. They want to be able to keep their home. Their They're making bets on the future. When you put money on a credit card that you know you can't pay off this month, but you think maybe you can pay off in six months, that's a bet on the future, that six months down the road is gonna be good. And with the average credit card debt in the United States around $17,000 per person, you know that a lot of people are making bets on the future. And if they're afraid that those bets are gonna go south, or if it looks to them like those bets are gonna go south, Um, you know, it becomes very problematic in terms of saying, well, yes, let's maintain the status quo when the status quo isn't doing good. So this recession is coming. There is now no doubt about it. It's also, to the extent that it is coming, if it happens between now and November, Donald Trump will almost certainly blame it on the virus in China. That's not the single and sole cause. That's one small piece of it. But it's coming. And it's coming in large part because the Republicans refused to allow Barack Obama to really and truly address the core of the problem. You know, his Recovery Act, which yesterday, I believe it was, he tweeted out, you know, on this day 10 years ago, I signed the Recovery Act, which has led to 10 years of economic expansion, which is true. And he kind of blew away Donald Trump because he basically took credit for his own economic expansion. God bless him. And he's, and he's right. And it was a good thing. But the whole point is that if this crash happens or recession happens before the election, it increases the probability that people will vote for a Democrat instead of Donald Trump. If he can hold the economy together here in the United States, even if the worldwide economy starts falling apart, if he can hold it together in the United States, it increases the probability that Donald Trump gets reelected. And then what happens is, I mean, Trump has the ability, since, since Jerome Powell, the Fed chief, just dances to Trump's tunes no matter what he says. Powell's been wanting to raise interest rates. The interest rates are artificially low, and they have been for a number of years. Well, they have been since 2008, 2009. It's the main thing that's kind of held the economy together. And if Trump, after the election, let's say Trump loses the election, And he says to Jerome Powell, you know, on November 5th or November 10th, he says to Jerome Powell, go ahead and raise interest rates. I don't care. I'm leaving office. And Powell, you know, kicks him up even a little bit, even, you know, a couple hundred basis points, you know, a tenth, two tenths, five tenths of a percent. That will throw the economy into recession. There's no doubt about it because so many parts of the economy now—the financialization of our economy—it's so heavily financialized. So much of our economy now depends on on you know big corporations and all this uh, and on banking rather than making things. It will throw the country into recession, which means that President Sanders or President Bloomberg or President Klobuchar or whoever it is is going to be coming into office with a recession. And, of course, you know what the Republicans are going to say. Aha! The market fell apart because they elected Bernie Sanders. The market fell apart because they elected Joe Biden. The market fell apart. You know, fill in the blank, right? This is what they are going to say. In fact, before the 2016 election, a week before the 2016 election, Donald Trump tweeted, if I'm not elected, the economy will go into a recession under Hillary Clinton. Right? This is how this guy thinks. So my question to you is, how do we plan for this? How do we message through this? How do we inform people? Because it's really hard. I mean, you can't just walk up to the average person and say, you know, the Baltic Dry Index or, you know, uh, industrial production in the United States has been negative now for almost a full year. It's been that way in Europe for a year. That's a leading indicator, about a one to two year leading indicator of a recession coming. You can't just walk up to people and say that. Now, when Reagan kind of juiced the economy, not kind of, when Reagan supercharged the economy in the early 1980s by cutting taxes and cutting regulation and letting corporations start buyback back their stocks, you know, the economy started looking really good. It was a sugar high, just like we have right now. And people would say to me, you know, well, Reagan season you doing a great job. And I would say, yeah, you give me a trillion dollar credit card. I'll show you what it looks like to live large. I think that may be our you best You're listening chance. to the Tom Hartman program. Pointing out that the so-called Trump uh, good economy, which, by the way, is not as good as Obama's, was just juiced. It was a sugar high. Tom Harmon here with you. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the possibility that a recession prior to the election will hurt Trump or may actually help Trump if he can play victim and say, oh, it's all the virus, et cetera, et cetera, versus a recession after the election that Trump could use to blame on a Democrat being elected if he loses the election, which is fairly likely. Frankly, if you look at the polls right now, now, Trump does have this billion-dollar Death Star that he has built, and there's a brilliant article about it over on The Atlantic, and if you haven't read it, you need to go track it down. They're doing what Cambridge Analytica did, and only they're doing it with greater sophistication and a lot more resources, and they've got their billionaires lined up behind it. And it's already happening. I mean, he's got thousands, I mean, he's spending a million dollars a day on Facebook to push out ads that contain just naked lies. And that's just fine with Mark Zuckerberg. You know, Facebook doesn't care if politicians lie. Although when Mike Bloomberg started doing memes on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, all of a sudden it was like, oh, Mike Bloomberg, a Democrat is doing this? Oh, my God. And he wasn't lying, by the way. He was just, he was just uh, basically paying a fee to influencers, which is something corporations do literally every day. It's part of the business model over there at Instagram. But Zuckerberg doesn't make money on it. The influencers make the money on it. Anyhow, Bloomberg starts doing that on Instagram, and suddenly Zuckerberg and and Facebook are like, whoa, man, we we need to reconsider the rules here. Uh, This is starting to look pretty grody to me. So anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls and see where we're going with all this. Jim in Sacramento watching Free Speech TV. Hey, Jim, what's up?
5: Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk about how the Democrats seem to fall into a trap of preparing the economy or the plate for the Republicans to take over. In other words, Republicans destroy the economy and then the Democrats come in and repair it and then give it back to the Republicans. The ratio that reveals what's going on is the ratio between national debt versus the GDP. So Mm -hmm. you can correct the situation by paying down the debt, of course, with an austerity program, which is the threat. Okay. But you can also change that ratio by inflating the economy. In other words, doing the things that are not now being done to expand the economy. And that plays into the. You're talking about like a a massive
3: infrastructure program.
5: Yes. In other words, right now, here in this little town of Sacramento, we supposedly have 5,000 homeless people. And it might cost $50 million to build single-occupancy, residential, housing, specifically for the homeless. And I'm not saying I know that's a fact. Seattle and many cities are dealing with it and have much more advanced programs than I'm trying to tell you. But that's an area where you could throw many, many billion dollars directly into the economy of each one of those cities. And it reflects the employment. It stimulates growth and each dollar that's spent circulates around, and there is a multiplier. All those Keynesian things apply. However, if you just manipulate things by bringing up or down the interest rate or hiding the debt, which is what Trump is doing right now, the program that came in uh, like around 2012 was quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve bought the debt and didn't even sell it. So that effectively lowered interest
3: rates. Took them off the market. Now,
5: what Trump is doing is paying that kind of money into the overnight funds. Okay? Mm -hmm. There's $600 to $700 billion financed, which normally would have been quantitative easing. In other words, they put it on the books of the Federal Reserve. But instead, they're buying two-week and 30-day notes. Can you imagine that and the effect is the the same. country is being financed on short-term money now yeah all yeah. you have know. to do it's, is unload it it's absolutely unprecedented this economy population. freezes it's up
3: never been done before
5: i called yeah. you about that on i think it was november 18th and at the time i was pointing you out that china is no longer buying u.s debt and that was what mm. stimulated the overnight borrowing i knew it was china because of the extent of the money hitting the economy now that has Hmm. developed into short-term
6: money
3: yeah it's uh, what these guys have done with this financialization of our economy is they have created a a, a train wreck and and the trains are moving toward each other 100 miles an hour each but they're still about a mile apart i'm not optimistic about what's going to happen when they get a lot closer and i don't think they can slow this thing down jim thanks for the call Tom Harmon University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Professor Harvey J. K., who's who is Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings, by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now when all they fought for is under siege and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history we are the children of the men and women who articulated fought for and endowed us with the promise of the four freedom on the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to congress this week's earlier he had defeated the republican wendell wilkie at the polls and won re reelection to an unprecedented third term but roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms still stalked by the great depression the united states was also increasingly threatened by the axis power nazi germany fascist italy imperial japan and with war already raging east and west Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency. He gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom, and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises. But he knew as well what Americans could accomplish, even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, He had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim... This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with his faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, President and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition they not only rejected authoritarianism but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom equality and democracy they subjected big business to public account and regulation empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people mobilized and organized labor unions fought for their rights broadened and leveled the we and we the people established a social security system expanded the nation's public infrastructure improved the environment cultivated the arts and refashioned popular culture and while much remained to be done imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions hopes and aspirations Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is "The Fight for the Four Freedoms" by Harvey Kent. Tom Harbin here with you. Long-time listeners to this program recall the story of Jude Winiski and the two Santa Claus theory. This was, you know, one of the big-time Republican strategists back in the '70s said when Jude Winiski came up with his two Santa Claus theory, we thought we had died and gone to heaven. And what it was, it was published in the Wall Street Journal in 1976, and it became the principal strategy of the Reagan uh, administration. At the time that Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, the federal budget deficit was $800 billion. It was less than $1 trillion. Reagan campaigned on budget deficits being a bad thing. By the time he left office, the federal budget deficit was $2.4 trillion. It had tripled, or $2.3 trillion. It was just a little less than tripled. So how did that happen and why? Well, here's Jude's strategy. Jude pointed out in this Wall Street Journal article that the Democrats were widely perceived, uh, keep in mind, this was in the wreckage of the Nixon resignation. And the Republican Party was... Freaking out. They were desperate. A, an unknown peanut farmer from Georgia had just beat Jerry Ford, you know, a respected member of the House of Representatives who had become vice president and then become president. And nobody questioned Jerry Ford's integrity. He'd been on the Warren Commission and everything else. And yet he was still beaten by this peanut farmer. The Republicans were pulling their hair out. Oh my God, what are we going to do? So what Jude Wininsky said was, the Democrats have always been viewed as the party of Santa Claus. They are Santa Claus. They bring the presents. They brought us Social Security in the 1930s. They brought us federal projects, the TVA, the Rural Electrification Administration that brought electricity into rural and poor people's homes, Um, the Rural Telephony Administration that brought telephone service to people, you know, on the tail end of of the Roosevelt administration. They brought us Medicare. They brought us Medicaid. They brought us all these programs. These were all long-term unemployment insurance, disability insurance, um, workplace safety rules, uh, food safety rules, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration. These were all things created by the Democratic Party and by members of the Democratic Party. And in every single case, the Republican Party at the time said, no, we don't want that. That's socialism. That's terrible. That's bad. That's not what government should be doing. And he points this out in this article in the Wall Street Journal and says, the Republicans have been seen historically as the party of Scrooge, and the Democrats are seen as the party of Santa Claus. And how do you run an election and win if you're Scrooge? You can't. So the Republican Party has to do two things. Number one, we have to figure out an arena, an area where we can be Santa Claus. And we need to rebrand ourselves as Santa Claus in that particular arena. And that is tax cuts. We need to become the tax cut Santa Claus because everybody hates paying taxes. Even people who don't pay taxes don't know they don't pay taxes. They hate taxes. So we have to become the tax cut Santa Claus, number one. And number two, we have to figure out a way to force the Democrats to shoot their Santa Claus. And that's Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. We have to figure out a way to force them to cut back on these entitlement programs that are so popular. And if they will cut those programs, they will lose their popularity. And people will say, oh, those Democrats, they're not Santa Claus. To hell with them. We're going to go with the Republicans because we want our tax cuts. And if you get a big enough tax cut, you don't even need Social Security. You can save money for retirement. And, you know, Jude Wininsky laid this out. And the final piece to it was, he said, the way that we do this is when a Republican is in office, you run up the debt as hard and as fast as you can. You intentionally spend mind-boggling amounts of money, again, being Santa Claus. You spend money on defense, you spend money on domestic programs, you spend as if you were a Democrat, only a drunken Democrat. You just spend like crazy when a Republican is in office And then the minute a Democrat comes into office, she starts squealing about the debt. Oh, my God, it's going to be the end of the republic. The dollar is going to be worthless. It's going to we're going to be like, you know, we're going to end up like Venezuela or Zimbabwe. You know, the currency, it's, it's going to be like Germany just before the war. You're going to have to take a wheelbarrow full of money down to the store to buy a loaf of bread if this deficit continues to grow like this. And Pete Peterson and his foundation, he was a Wall Street billionaire and he wanted to privatize Social Security so that he could take a piece of it. They had this debt clock on Wall Street and, you know, all this stuff and all these commentators, very serious people, would come on TV and talk. When the Democrats, you know, when Jimmy Carter was president or really it started when Bill Clinton was president and when Barack Obama was president, you couldn't turn on TV. I mean, every single day somebody was on there bemoaning the national debt. Oh, my God. And the Democrats actually took this seriously, sadly. To the point that the last two presidents to actually produce balanced budgets, and in one case, actually a surplus budget, were Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. They actually balanced the budget, and they did it shooting some of the Democratic Santa Clauses. Bill Clinton balanced the budget in part by block granting all kinds of programs, from housing programs to food stamp programs to, to the so-called welfare programs. So they did it. It worked, right? So now you know, Now we've got Trump, and he promised, when he campaigned, he promised that he was going to eliminate the federal budget deficit in, I believe it was five years, or in a certain relatively short period of time. Well, Obviously, he's exploded it. I mean, we've got annual deficits now of over a trillion dollars, which add to the $20 trillion debt that we already have. Every year the, the deficit adds to the debt. So this is where it gets hysterical. The Washington Post got a recording, an audio tape, of a private meeting that Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House chief of staff, and the head of the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, which decides how much money the government is spending and how and where. Right? He was the one who withheld the, the aid to Ukraine because it all runs through the OMB. They got an audio tape of, of him speaking at the Oxford Union to a group of right-wingers. And uh, here's what he said. This is verbatim quote. My party is very interested in deficits when there is a Democrat in the White House. The worst thing in the world is deficits when Barack Obama was the president. Then Donald Trump became president and we're a lot less interested as a party. Bingo, right? Bingo. Jude Winansky lives on. I mean, he's been dead since the 80s, but he, or, or maybe the 90s. I'm not sure when he died, but, but he lives on. I just don't, you know, why doesn't the media ever even point this out? It's like, this is not a secret. This was published in the Wall Street Journal 40 years ago. Damon in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Damon, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up?
6: How are you doing? I just wanted to get into some of your show. i only seen a report so far on two so Let me get to the point. Um, Yale and two other universities, Yale University and two other universities, I think one of them was University of Florida. I'm not sure. They did Bernie Sanders, Pacific, Medicare for all plan. And they came out, it would say, Four point five trillion, with a T, dollars over ten years,
5: and saves six hundred eighty thousand lives over ten years. That's correct.
3: That's correct. It was published in the Lancet, the British medical journal that is the gold standard for the world of medical journals. And your numbers are exactly right. And yes, and that was Yale University was the principal. That was the you know the lead uh, credited group in that study. And it was a good, solid, peer-reviewed scientific study excellent point damon thank you very much for calling and making it i appreciate it david in spotswood new jersey hey david what's on your mind today
0: hey good afternoon um, i just wanted to call in and, and rant about the governor of georgia opening up and also a lot of other right wing or conservative uh politicians across the country trying to echo in saying they don't care and open it up their whole reasoning is, is is that it makes economic sense. But they've done research on this. I'll, I'll use as an example uh, Thailand. Like, let's say in Thailand there's a region and there's a paint factory, and the paint factory puts the um, – dumps turpentine into the river. The workers there don't spend money into the economy because they know they're going to get sick because they, they have no choice but to drink the water from the river. Which, unfortunately, the REPA rules have been suspended as well. But the thing is, is I'm really disheartened by the mainstream media, because the mainstream media should be educating people about this. It's actually counterproductive to a good economy. I mean, you should be quoting Linda Bain Johnson, who said that any jack, a hey, you know what, can kick down a barn, but it takes a carpenter to build one. Thank you. I'll cue into your response. Yeah, no,
3: I think you're absolutely right, David. And let me add something to it. That's That was a trenchant observation. The other advantage that Ron DeSantis gets in Florida, Brian Kemp gets in Georgia, Greg Abbott gets in Texas, if they, quote, open the state, and that eight other Republican governors who never closed their states continue to have, is that when people in those states lose their jobs, because the economy has been shut down by a disease, not by a governor. If the governors don't recognize that, those people will not qualify for unemployment benefits as being involuntarily separated. And in a lot of states, if you are fired or laid off, as opposed to not having any control over why you're not there any longer, you don't get unemployment or you get radically reduced unemployment. And you don't qualify for things like food stamps in some of these states or, or, you know, housing assistance or any other kind of assistance. And I believe that that's why these Republican governors are doing this, period, full stop. I think they're just doing it to screw people on the unemployment. And I think that people are starting to figure that out.
2: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
3: So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program. Anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com, slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. It's the Tom Marvin University Book Club. Our book today is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremmer. This is from Chapter One, titled Winners and Losers. It's time for a local revolution, the candidate told the roaring crowd. Countries are no longer nations, but markets. Borders are erased. Everyone can come to our country, and this has cut our salaries and our social protections. This dilutes our cultural identity. Marine Le Pen's four sentences capture every important element of the anxiety rising across the Western world. The borders are open and the foreigners are coming. They'll steal your job. They will cost you your pension and your health care by bankrupting your system. They will pollute your culture. Some of them are killers. Le Pen fell short in her bid to become France's president in 2017. but Her message remains compelling for the 21st century politics of us versus them. But this is not a story about Marine Le Pen or Donald J. Trump or any of the other populist powerhouses who have emerged in Europe and the United States in recent years. Spin the camera toward the furious crowd. There's the real story. It's not the messenger that drives this movement. It's the fears, often if not always justified, of ordinary people. Fears of lost jobs, surging waves of strangers, vanishing national identities, and the incomprehensible public violence associated with terrorism. It's the growing doubt among citizens that government can protect them, provide them with opportunities for a better life, and help them remain the masters of their fate. As of December 2015, just 6% of people in the United States, 4% in Germany, 4% in Britain, and 3% in France believe the world is getting better. The pessimistic majority suspects that those with power, money, and influence care more about their cosmopolitan world than they do about their fellow citizens. Many citizens of these countries now believe that globalization works for the favored few, but not for them. And they have a point. Globalization, the cross-border flow of ideas, information, money, people, goods, and services, has resulted in an interconnected world where national leaders have increasingly limited ability to protect the lives and livelihoods of their citizens. In the digital age, borders no longer mean what citizens think they mean. In some ways, they barely exist. Globalism, the belief that the interdependence that created globalization is a good thing, is indeed the ideology of the elite. Political leaders of the wealthy West have been globalism's biggest advocates, building a system that has propelled ideas, information, people, money, goods, and services across borders at a speed and on a scale without precedent in human history. Sure, more than a billion people have risen from poverty in recent decades, and economies and markets have come a long way from the financial crisis. But along with new opportunities come serious vulnerabilities, and the refusal of the global elite to acknowledge the downsides of the new interdependence confirms the suspicions of those losing their sense of security and standard of living that elites in New York and Paris have more in common with elites in Rome and San Francisco than than with their discarded countrymen in Tulsa, Turin, Tass, Tuscaloosa, and Toulon. The globalists gutted the American working class and created a middle class in Asia, former White House strategist Steve Bannon told The Hollywood Reporter a few days after Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. The issue is now about Americans looking not to get effed over. End of quote. In the United States, the jobs that once lifted generations of Americans into the middle class and kept them there for life are vanishing. Crime and drug addiction are rising. While 87% of Chinese and 74% of Indians told pollsters in 2017 that they believe their country is moving in the right direction, only 43% of Americans said the same thing. In Europe, the European Commission and the unelected bureaucrats who enforce its rules have legislated for its 28 member nations. In recent years, they've failed to halt a debt crisis that has forced many Europeans to accept lower wages, higher prices, later retirement, less generous pensions, and an uncertain future all while telling them that they must bail out foreign countries that have spent their way into debt in the migrant crisis globalist european leaders insisted that all eu members must accept muslim refugees in numbers determined in brussels and barricades and a spike in nationalism were the result i'm defining nationalism here as one form of us versus them intended to rally members of one nation against those of other nations Were the wave of populist nationalism sweeping the United States and Europe only signs of globalism's failure, it would be bad enough. But there's a larger crisis coming. Many of the storms creating turmoil in the U.S. and Europe, particularly technological change in the workplace broader awareness of income inequality, are now headed across borders and into the developing world, where governments and institutions are not ready. Developing countries are especially vulnerable because the institutions that create stability in developing countries are not as sturdy and social safety nets aren't nearly as strong as in the United States and the, in the European Union. They face an even bigger gap between rich and poor, and the reality that new technologies will kill large numbers of jobs that lifted expectations for a better life will be much harder to manage. In short, just as the financial crisis had a cascading effect through financial markets and real economies around the world, so the sources of anger convulsing Europe and America will send shockwaves through dozens of other countries. Some will absorb these shocks. Some of them won't. As poorer people in developing countries become more aware of what they're missing or losing, many will pick up rocks. The book, Us Versus Them, by Ian Bremmer. Welcome back. Tom Harvard here with you. The grift continues. What do we do about this? How do we do it? It seems to me that the solution is going to be at the ballot box in November, assuming that the republicans don't manage to completely screw up our elections in a way that throws us into the 12th amendment now keep in mind there's a lot of time between now and november norma in montgomery alabama hey norma what's on your mind today
6: hi tom how you doing
3: good what's up
6: okay all right um earlier you had um, a lady call in said she and her friends were talking about going for bloomberg because they're afraid their taxes would go up Well, first of all, your income would have to be very high for your taxes to go up. But secondly, Senator Sanders' expanded Medicare for All plan includes long-term care, which would save people millions of dollars. Also, most people in this country do not understand that poor people who are making less than $10 an hour, they're only allowed to work 30 hours a week at a job, which means they have two to three jobs. Each paycheck has Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid taken out of it. They're already paying for something they can't use. And bless his heart, Julio, I'd like to invite him to come to the South where no Republican governor expanded Medicaid. And we have had eight outbreaks of tuberculosis here. One of our best restaurants was closed for two months because of a hepatitis A outbreak. These people, particularly anyone who works as a contract employee, these are the people who clean buildings, who clean schools, who work anywhere and everywhere that they can get a job, do not have any benefits. They move in and out of society everywhere all over the country. And they can be carriers of any and every disease you could probably think of. With a coronavirus, I'm sitting here wondering, how many isolation units do our three small hospitals have here? How many doctors do we have? Most of the nurses in these hospitals are contract employees. The hospitals do not want to pay all of these matching benefits for Social Security and Medicare. They want to have the least amount of expenses possible. So all of these contract nurses move around the country day to day working different shifts. In 2004, my mother was almost killed because the contract nurse worked at one hospital for 12 hours, then reported to my mother's hospital for 12 hours and gave her the medication for the woman next door who was a diabetic. If I had not caught it, she would have died probably in about five hours because she did not wow. need insulin when she's hypoglycemic and NPO for 24 hours for a procedure. Right. These, right. This, is, this has to stop, because if we don't have sufficient health care across this country, we could lose a significant portion of the country, the population. Not only that, why should you wish your neighbor to continue for the rest of their life to hand over half of their income so a CEO can be happy?
3: Right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Norma, thank you. Very, very well said.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.